Dear listeners, in this episode of Conversations, I talk with my niece Mei Chin Wu about her journey as a Hmong mother, whose oldest son has autism. She discusses her role as an advocate for her son and addresses some of the cultural barriers she has faced. Mei Chin also talks about her own work in policymaking and how important it is to provide assistance in breaking through the cultural barriers. I hope Mei Chin's story will resonate with some of you and your own triumphs and struggles. Let's listen in. I want to say thank you, Mai Chi, for being here and for sharing your story about your family's journey with autism.、Um, You're want, welcome. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of this cast.、Uh, I want to start off being completely honest with you and say that I know nothing about autism except for what I've learned through popular culture. You know things like movies and TV shows.、Um, I think maybe. Rain Man was a movie that I saw way back in the day. That had、um, I don't know if you're familiar with it,、um, where、yeah. they had、mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman play someone with I believe he had Aspergers, and then of course more recently there's like、uh, the Good Doctor、um, about、mm-hmm. the doctor with、uh, autism, and then Atypical. So these are just the things that I've. I've been exposed through pop culture about autism, so I know nothing. And I'm sure all of those shows have、um, generalizations that they've、uh, put out there that probably has affected the way I view anyone with autism. So I just want to say say ahead of time that if I say anything incorrectly or insensitive, you know, is insensitive, please let me know. I'm sure、um, mm-hmm. a lot of us out there are like that. Oh no! Just thank you for being able to ask questions and be transparent, and feel free to ask me to define anything or just in a simpler term if you need that too. Right. All right. So let's get started. I want to、um, let you introduce yourself, and I think the most important thing here is to just、um, define autism for us. Um, and then、sure. take it from there. All right. So currently in the United States,、um, according to the Centers for Disease Control, there is about one in fifty-nine children diagnosed with autism today, based on research studies、um, combined from different states. Currently, I live in Minnesota, so I can only speak for Minnesota. But currently, Minnesota has one in forty-two, which is a lot higher than the national rate in the U.S. Um, autism. It's known as a spectrum disorder. It's why it's called the spectrum disorder. It's because it's a broad range of conditions, right? And it's characterized by different things that the individual may experience. It could be something socially, something with speech, something with nonverbal communication, something with a repetitive behavior. And Sometimes these symptoms and characteristics they can present themselves in a wide variety of combinations from mild to severe. That's why it's called a spectrum because it's so broad. And just because you know one person who is autistic doesn't mean that the other individual that you may run into later who is also autistic is similar to the person that you know. And so each individual may display a unique combination of multiple characteristics on the spectrum. I hope that helps clarify what autism is. Yeah, that does. And can you、um, 
just talk a little. So I was doing some research, and I just, you know, I usually just refer to it as like autism or someone with uh, who's autistic. But the I don't know the scientific or medical terms is actually um, autism spectrum disorder. Is that correct? So ASD. Yes. yes, it is. So the whole term is autism spectrum disorder (ASD). Sometimes that's what people abbreviate to. Um, so to get a medical diagnosis, you need the full term. But a lot of individuals and self-advocates, they don't like that word disorder, right? Because disorder brings so much of a stigma right. towards like a negative feeling. So sometimes people just say I'm on the spectrum right. or else I'm autistic. Um, majority of the people that I've met have said, yep, I'm on the spectrum. Just because it's very plain language, it's very simple. And not to get all scientific about what, what I defined, what autism is, but when I play language that and explain it to family members that have the cultural barrier that don't understand autism because there's no native language that defines autism, right. I just tell that family member and also through my experience that autism is just a diagnosis that helps the health insurance world to pay for tools and um, resources for the child to learn how to um, adapt to the environment that they're going through. And their brain just works differently, even though it's the same kind of brain that we all have. It just processes things differently. And they, it might just have more spider webs to go through. And that's how I explain autism right. on a very plain, basic level. Okay. But thank you for that, um, that definition. <clears throat> I think it will help us understand a little bit more about um, how the spectrum works. Like it just, it ranges from, you know, all orders and everyone everyone is different um, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit so you know a lot about autism can you share a little bit about what it is that you do yes so my background is um in healthcare. i went to nursing school and then i really got into the policy side of it because you know there's so many inequities throughout the state and nationally and there's a lot of institutional racism that I see. Mm -hmm. And so I got really passionate into going into policy to address these inequities, right? Because we want everybody to receive access. But then the lower class you are, the more underprivileged you are, the lesser tools and resources you get to access the best health care that you can receive to help you become independent, to, to help you utilize all opportunities. And so Going into the policy field of autism, I specialize in um, the autism benefit for the state of Minnesota, and uh, we work with kiddos from 0 to 21. So we do more of, like, the policies around how a child receives that diagnosis and how they become, um, um, how, how they are meeting the medical needs to get into our autism benefit. So I do a lot of that piece from an administrative level on an authority level, and we also work with our providers that provide these services for our kiddos because we want to hold them accountable. Right. We want to make sure they're doing a great job because at the end of the day, it's not about me as a policy person. It's not about the provider trying to, you know, get paid for services. It's truly about the child because we're all committed to provide the best resource and outcome for the individual. Right. So that's where I am right now. And because training is so important and people don't even understand what autism is, I do a lot of that piece, too, along with um, the piece with just community engagement. Because 
I want to know why some communities have a harder time to understand and grasp the tools and resources versus other community members that may be pretty on top of things and how to kind of co-factor those disparities and how to recreate and implement new policies to make sure it's more accessible and it's easier to access and how do we make it where it's not a part of their fear and their stigma to overcome their own barriers, right? Mm -hmm. And so that way they can be the advocate for their loved ones or for themselves receiving and going through this diagnosis. Right. I want to come back to um, the cultural barriers in a little bit, but I want to actually clear, uh, clarify one thing that um, has been in the news, you know, through the years. Um, and if you can just talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that, um, the autism and the relation between vaccines. Can you just talk about that and just clarify that for us? Sure. So, um, we'll be. I'll be very direct. Vaccination and Autism does not relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a study out there that was publicized um, by celebrities, right? Because celebrities have money so they can move forward their their spark and interest. And I think some of their children were also maybe on the spectrum. Right. And just getting some advocates behind that to push that message and that study out. But then many years later, the researchers admitted that the study didn't have enough participants. So it was actually falsified. Mm-hmm. And so that for a long time, people were afraid of vaccinations. People were afraid of just going through that piece. And the reason why some parents believe in that still, and still, still today is because, um, you know, they sometimes just through your own experience, people have their own judgment and biases and perceptions and they believe um, what they want to do. But because autism isn't really discovered, or you can't really see the signs until the child kind of should be peaking for their words. And that's when those 12-month vaccines, those 15-month, 18-month requirements kick in too, right? So that's why people connect the dots and they think that because those are the same age as when you're required to do your um, immunizations, they think it relates, but it really doesn't. Um, Vaccination has no uh, relation to autism and there's no proven study and um, for sure, there's a proven study that, um, multiple studies, that there is some kind of DNA component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, autism is still very new, and that's why it's been, cha- it's been changed so many times um, prior to the DSM-5, which is the, the current diagnostic um, for p- mental health practitioners to use to diagnose um, anybody with, like, any kind of mental health or um, behavioral thing. The current DSM-5, it's a spectrum now, but prior to that, it was, like, separated with, like, Asperger's, uh, Rett syndrome, like, just multiple things. Right. And now, like, 20 years ago, if you were diagnosed with Asperger's, today, if you had Asperger's, like, as a new diagnosis, it would just be called autism, autism spectrum disorder. So, yes. because the spectrum is so vague and so big, right. it's, it's a spectrum of multiple things. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. So, you know, I think um, that causes a lot of fear and a lot of um, stigma around autism is that, you know, it's something that mm-hmm. you can cause and there's no correlation at all whatsoever. So I think that's right. very important to um, 
to say, because I think there is a lot of stigma around that, on top of the cultural mm -hmm. stigma uh, barriers as well. Um, and I think another thing that people forget, too, about that stigma is because vaccinations are kind of mandated by government, right? So we also have to think about the cultural piece, where a lot of our community members are either immigrants mm -hmm. or refugees. And so they've had a bad relationship with the government from where they came from. That's why they had to come to a safe place in the U.S. So then because of that barrier already and that um, strained relationship from their home country, mm -hmm. and when they come here and they're told by a new government what they have to do for their child, there is that lack of trust too. Right. So that's what I'm also um, learning when I'm in the community. It's the the trust that they don't have with our government because of the things that they have gone through. So there's that historical trauma too that right. comes along with it. Right. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that <clears throat> that trust um, with the government. I just want to share a, um, something that I read recently um, about um, the diagnosis of uh, autism, or at least uh -huh. catching it early, because catching it early is very, very important, correct? Or not catching correct. it, but, but um, you know, getting an early diagnosis so you can start to, um, you know, to work with the child. Mm -hmm. And I was reading that there's a big difference between um, the diagnosis with white people Black people and Latinos. This was a particular study that just studied around those those uh, races, and mm -hmm. it, it was really interesting to me, Michi, because the study said that a lot of um, Black children were not being diagnosed with autism, but rather with a behavioral issues, because. Doctors will assume that it's instead of autism, it was actually behavioral issues because they're black, and there's that, you know, that prejudice. Do you guys have you found that, or have you studied that in your own work? And um, how does that affect, you know, cultural differences, cultural barriers in terms of just getting people diagnosed early, or getting around the stigma of? getting a diagnosis at all? So in my work, um, there are a lot of barriers to why families don't get the diagnosis a lot earlier or why they choose not to go the medical route mm -hmm. and vice versa. Um, yes, um, race plays a part of the barriers because right. sometimes people that are even professionals and families Every individual has their own preconceived bias, right? Right. And sometimes when professionals work with certain um, groups for so long, they may have a perceived um, bias of one individual that represents a community is a representation of all. Mm -hmm. And so because of that bias, sometimes it creates that hurt into the community where another individual seeing the provider May, may be misdirected the wrong information based on the preconceived bias of the individual professional. Right, right. Another issue is that a lot of cultures are, they don't like any kind of word that has disorder, disability, or mental health around it. Right. It's just because of, our, of how our culture has treated people with disabilities, 
they have treated people with uh, mental health disorder or anything, and they they don't want that label because they're afraid to be a part of that label that um, comes with a judgment, right? right? And so that's why people don't want to get diagnosed, so they avoid seeing the doctors and they avoid um, getting the help because they think that they're just going to learn how to grow with it and learn how to manage it. Mm-hmm. And so because they're not addressing the issues, sometimes it becomes behavioral issues. Sometimes it becomes even a different diagnosis of like depression, anxiety, or something, because mm-hmm. whatever that they were experiencing at a younger age, they're not addressing. So it's manifesting to something bigger. Another issue is that there's a national provider shortage for mental health practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just because mental health has been on the rise for so long. And now that people are becoming more vocal about it, they're, come, they're, they're talking about it more, about their mental health, self-care, um, it's just, I, I've just seen it maybe within the last 10 years mm-hmm. that it's been a spike in interest of a lot of people. And we continue to have a provider shortage because it's a hard field to go to school for. And our population is continuously growing. And so the rate, the professional ratio to the individuals, it's, it's, you know, we need more providers. Another issue that I've been seeing why they don't access things based on culture is it's also the geographic location. So they also have a barrier because they might be living in an area that the community could be so poor or the community is so rural that they don't have even a clinic nearby within like a hundred mile radius Mm -hmm. because they may be like a farmer or somebody that just likes to live out in the countryside. And so because of that piece, they don't have that specialty in their area. They don't seek the services. So there's so many barriers to why there's different race that have different um, outcomes. Mm-hmm. And in the um, Latino community that I've we done some studies on, they have, like currently with our government administration right now, they are afraid that they're going to get taken away because right. they might be undocumented, right? right? Mm-hmm. So because they want to protect themselves, they don't want to see a medical professional, even though the medical professional um, has to keep their information confidential based on medical HIPAA. But because there's, again, they have a preconceived um, bias of how government is in their community. So they're going to treat all non-people that don't look like them that they might be out to get some. So that's why some other communities have a higher rate because, or a lower rate of not being diagnosed because they're, they have other issues to be concerned about. Right, right. Um <clears throat> Yeah, that, that's that's unfortunate. And I think it's already hard enough being someone who has to, you know, who has it, that they need the treatment mm-hmm. or the help. It's unfortunate. There's so many other social and cultural barriers around that. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about what you're doing um, in terms of how to overcome that in your work? Or are you- yeah. So we yeah. So from our work, we um, actually. So the great thing about the the stakeholders and the community members that push for this autism benefit to to work is that um, they really are a part of diverse backgrounds and they really push for the cultural training component to it. Um, and culture means so many different things from so many perspectives. Right. It can mean like how you're raised as a family, 
or religiously what you believe in, um, just the culture of like being a farm girl versus city girl versus a country girl, your geographic location, your ethnicity, your um, race. So there's a lot of things that play in it, who you, how you identify yourself in, um, for gender wise. And so it was mandated for us to create something to help treating providers um, that specialize in autism to be more mindful and to acknowledge their biases and to overcome that and to ensure that the individual who's on the spectrum, they respect their culture and beliefs. So then that could, they can make it more of a fulfilled treatment plan for them from a person-centered approach. So we do a lot of that. We created an online cultural training first in the nation because there's not one out there for autism. So when we try to developed this. We like researched everywhere. So um, Minnesota, I'm very proud of being a part of Minnesota because we don't have anything out there, but we, we, as in my team and I, we decided, you know, to go forward and just do it and make sure we are very inclusive and maybe the first step for others to kind of copy us as in other states and make it better. Um, and also we do so much of community engagement outside of our norm. Like when I say norm, I'm talking about outside of our office. Cause you know, when you're in an authority level, you do a lot of office work, mm-hmm. administrative work, but like we make time and effort to get to know the communities. If, you know, if we can't reach all, at least we're trying somewhere and go from there to build those organic relationships. So it's the relationship trust building too, with different Communities religiously, um, just communities within like location, American Indian, different ethnic groups. So yeah, we we do a lot of the face to face stuff too. So we that's how we're starting to address these barriers, and we're also recruiting diverse providers that specialize in multiple languages, because a lot of times we find communities more comfortable seeing somebody that they can identify themselves. Right. similar to in belief, language, and ethnicity-wise. So that's also very important in the healthcare system. Wow. That's great. And thank you for doing that. I, I really, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, trailblazing time for you guys. I think that's great. And I was going to talk thank a little you. bit about that because, you know, <clears throat> there is a lot of the language barrier in just explaining what autism is um, and... Um, Understanding, I guess, culturally understanding the stigma itself within a culture that outsiders might not understand that, you know, someone from within the the community would probably be able to address better. So I I definitely see the value in that. I appreciate that you guys are doing that. Um, Thank you. So I would like to... It's not easy work. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. Um, yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit about your own story, Machi, um, your own mm-hmm. personal connection. And uh, you have a son who was recently diagnosed with autism. Can you uh, share your story with us and tell us a little bit of how mm-hmm. that came about? How old is he now? When was he diagnosed? Um, what, were, what prompted you to... Um, to get them tested, I guess. Yeah, sure. 
So, yeah. So, our our first oldest one, um, he's currently two and a half years old. He is currently receiving full-time in-home autism therapy. So, they help him a lot with his behaviors and just kind of help him how to, like, socially communicate and just giving him, like, uh, redirections and reinforcers to help him to be able to um, comprehend and work with other individuals once he starts going to school full-time. And so... When he was um, about 12 months, I started to notice that at 12 months, he was a little bit delayed in everything. He didn't crawl until about nine months, uh, which was a little bit later than most most norm within the milestone. And then also at 12 months, he wasn't walking, but that was okay. Like they say, don't compare your child with another child, but he started walking at about 14 months. So I noticed that it was a little bit harder for him um, from a physical perspective to reach those milestones. So at about 12 months, he started uh, singing the alphabet. And I just thought, oh, this is amazing. I didn't know that one-year-olds knew the alphabet by the time they're 12 months. And then it became um, a fixation when we would go to the store or or just um, at the mall and letters were, you know, fine printed out there on description of clothing or description of the stores and he would just have to stop and read the letters mm-hmm. and remember he's only one years old and then um about one and a half he started to love counting like he just loved things with patterns and sequences um by the time he was about 16 months I noticed that he stopped engaging in direct eye contact with us mm-hmm. and he was speaking but he spoke in terms of music as in he he's very gifted in music he loves um nursery rhymes and so he spoke to us it was things that he remembered and he scripted meaning that he memorized the actual lyrics in the nursery rhymes and that's how he communicated with us so he was speaking but it just wasn't um, functional communication. It wasn't like expressive communication. Mm-hmm. And as as he got a little bit more um, older, about 18 months, he started to know how to ask for things, but he didn't ask them in a verbal communication-wise. He would prompt you physically, drag your hand, and kind of put your hand where he wanted it to be. And sometimes you couldn't understand because he he couldn't speak and tell you. So you would kind of have to play a guessing game by touching the things and then... He got he got very frustrated easily because he couldn't communicate. So then started having some behavioral stuff, and then um, it it was about twenty months. I because from twelve to twenty months, I've been telling my husband that I think my kiddo might be on the spectrum, but my husband didn't believe me, and he was like, "You live and breathe autism every day, and so you're probably just overanalyzing, and that you every person that you run into, you're." You're just probably like overthinking their skill sets and just wondering if they're on the spectrum. And, you know, in our, in our culture, I identify myself as Hmong American. In the Hmong community, um, a lot of times I've been told that boys are slower than girls. Mm-hmm. So their speech is more delayed. So sometimes they don't start talking until three or four. Mm-hmm. But in our Western society world, that, 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 that should be a red flag if they don't speak until they're three or four, just because by 12 to 18 months, they want you to be able to even like 
label who your mom is or even label what milk is, right? right. Whatever the na- native language you speak. And so he had that mentality. He is and my husband thought that it was just a typical boy thing. But I think what it really helped convince him was when I told him that I made a schedule to see a child psychologist. And we're just going to go to make sure that I'm not going crazy as a mom because they have the license to diagnose. And we just want to make sure we're covering all our basics, you know, in case we're missing anything else. And he agreed. So the great thing about that piece was that um, he went through the assessment with me, with our son. And the second day of the final assessment, and my son was about 20 months at that time. She was like, he's on the spectrum, and this is why. So she went through all the characteristics of why he's on the spectrum, because he had a repetitive behavior, and he had some social interaction um, stuff. And so when my husband heard that from the licensed child psychologist that specialized in the brain, Mm -hmm. it was a reality for him, because somebody with a licensed degree um, diagnosed him on the spectrum. And... Prior to us going through this, we had these conversations with our families and everybody was against it. They were like, no, because if he goes on, if he's diagnosed with anything, they're going to give him medication and then they're just going to even make him slower and dumb. When I say dumb, there's no word for disability in Hmong. Mm-hmm. So they use the word door to explain any kind of developmental delay, cognitive delay, physical disability, mentally. So it's just very unfortunate. That's the broad term that they use just to educate the listeners. Right. Um, and so because they thought that autism automatically labeled my son dumb, they didn't want him to become more dumb by having him on medications because they've heard horror stories. But throughout this journey, I never said that my son was dumb mm-hmm. in the long term. I just said he needed a diagnosis to get help. Yeah. And people auto- automatically assume that it goes straight to being labeled dumb, which is so unfortunate. And that's probably another reason why people don't want to get the diagnosis or any kind of label, because they don't want to be labeled dumb. Because yeah. there's no actual word to define anybody's disability in most cultures and most languages, which is unfortunate. Um, but I, I always tell my family members, even when I post about him, just to keep people updated. They 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 either they apologize to me that he has a diagnosis or they they just say he's not stupid he's so brilliant but funny story I've never said my son was stupid I've never asked for any sympathy I only share information with some people because I want to educate them that it's not scary to talk about autism right that you can be that voice for those that don't have that voice to speak for themselves. And so because of the stigma that I'm already experiencing as a parent, I can see why people are so afraid to get the help for their child or to get the help for themselves. Right. So because yeah. I'm very blessed and lucky in this field, I noticed the red spikes at about 12 months. But I was just telling my husband the other day, just imagine if we didn't have these opportunities and education behind this, we would probably be as lost as any other parent out there. And because we're so privileged to be in the shoes that we are in, um, we are taking full advantage of utilizing all the resources. Because like like I said before, he's getting in-home therapy. 
is going to school, um, as in preschool studying, and also like, and he's like, we're just getting involved in a lot of community engagement stuff to kind of help him with his social skills on the weekends too, like with family engagement. But it's because we we want to be the drive for him to be independent, and we don't care about labels. And we are also privileged to have that background. So that's why we're so outspoken about his diagnosis. And but we remind people, he's just one representation of a person on the spectrum. And it's truly his personal story. But I use it with limited details because I want to educate and advocate those that don't know how to do it. And I hope to inspire them so then that way they can be the voice for their loved ones or for themselves. Right. I think what's important here is that you want to create a world that's inclusive for him as he gets older. Yeah. And that's the most important yeah. thing that, you know, a parent can do. So, you know, we, right. have to, we have to set aside our own pride and our own, um, uh, yeah, our, our own ideas of what we think this, this kind right. of disorder is. Um, can, I back right. it up? can I back it up a little bit? <clears throat> and... Uh-huh. Um, can you talk about the process of um, going to, you know, what did you, you have a little bit more of an advantage to, than the rest of us because you work in, um, in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the first step if you suspect that your child has autism? You just talk to the pediatrician um, and then go from there. What, uh, can you just talk a little bit about the process? Sure. So from my experience, in, in, in a perfect world, yes, you would want to talk with your child's primary care provider about the concerns, about the delays, and maybe speech, behavior, or anything that you might think is not a part of a normal process and how you define normal. And normal is different for everybody. I did actually try to address it with my child's pediatrician, mm-hmm. but she had her own preconceived bias, too, because at that time, her son was just one year older than mine, and she also used the same verbiage as my husband. Oh, my son's a boy, and he's a little delayed, and he didn't start speaking until he was three. I don't think your son's on the spectrum. Let's just wait it out a little bit more, and when we do a follow-up, we'll just see if he he still is struggling with some of these communication areas, right? right? So I was very discouraged by that, and... I think it's because she's only, like, family practice pediatrics. Mm -hmm. And so, like, she didn't specialize in neural and, like, anything in the brain. So that's why it wasn't alarming to her. But it's unfortunate because some people truly believe in their providers. So whatever the provider will say is what they will do. But because I had the advantage and I I understood how health insurance works in our world right now, Mm -hmm. that you don't need a referral for behavioral health. You do not need a referral for a psychological assessment. Maybe you needed that 10 years ago, but right now you don't. So I still went ahead and called um, the best children's clinic out there that I thought could be able to help my kiddo because they just specialize in pediatrics Mm -hmm. and they just specialize in neural in the brain. So I just said, I'm just going to go to them. And if they have a way, that's totally fine with me, but I need to be proactive somehow. And so I called them and, we got him on the waiting list. So because he was still under two years old, sometimes a lot of providers consider that a very critical stage in, in an individual's life if they're under two because they believe that the earlier the intervention, the better right. to address. 
And so because he was under two, they have spots for clients that call when their child is under two. So we actually got seen within a month after we got on the waiting list. So we were so fortunate. I feel like God kind of like just guided us through this whole process. Um, just because I felt like everything just happened so perfectly in my world, based on the experience I've heard from, I'm, I've heard from other parents that have struggled with the system. Mm-hmm. We were just very fortunate that everything fit so well for my kid because by the time he got diagnosed, we ended up moving to a new house and we didn't want to make a determination yet of who to see because we didn't know what area we were going to live in. And sometimes your area is a factor of who can come see your child and where you can go, right? right. Based on um, your work, your travel plans, and like just the flexibility of being able to take your child to therapy or having them come into your home. So by the time we moved... But then his diagnosis, he started receiving in-home therapy within three months. So from May of 2019 until now, it hasn't even been a year yet. He has he's talking um, in full sentences with meaningful communication. Um, he's really great at asking for things now. He's able to wait. He's able to prompt and look at you in the eye. Um, and he's he's just really good at listening and. We would not be able to do this without his amazing um, team. And when I say team, I talk about my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, um, my brother-in-law, just my siblings and my mom and dad and also his therapist. Because everybody had to support it whether they liked it or not. And I know it was really hard for strangers to come to our house daily. But in the end, they see him progressing mm-hmm. and they are starting to support that piece. Wow, that's great. And that's the best thing that you can do um, for your child. Right. So if... if um, But I will... Go, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that um, it's so important to get the diagnosis early so that you can help him, um, give him the therapy, I guess, to help him develop. Mm-hmm. What, yeah. what happens if you mm-hmm. don't? Get it? Um, is it just that much harder to work with? Right. It is. Um, so, a lot of families that don't know this stuff, that because I'm very fortunate because of where I am mm-hmm. today, um, they don't find out until their child goes to school, and right. then their their child starts experiencing difficulties with the school setting. They start to become less engaged with the teacher, with their classmates, and then it becomes like some behavioral challenges, right? Mm-hmm. And then it becomes some kind of distraction where they start to fail in their courses and then they become very delayed and behind. And then so the school recognizes that and federally mandated, that's when they might determine if the child has any kind of special education that they need to address to create those accommodations for the individual. And so sometimes families don't find out until they're like five to nine years old because I'm talking about the school age years. And by the, by the time that happens, um, they've already been delayed in a school setting that by the time you get them on um, private therapy, too, because some families don't even utilize private therapy because they don't know about that option as well. Mm-hmm. But the child, are, the child has already lost the, the most important developmental years. They say it's between zero to five years old because right. that's when your, your brains are able to pick up things so quick. That's why they say that early intervention is so important mm-hmm. because um, 
people that receive any kind of appropriate education prior to five, it helps with that developmental stages because that's when it starts sparking in their life. So it helps them react better to society. And so the earlier you get diagnosed, the more time you get prepared for the real world. So that's why it's so important to get that earlier intervention because when you get diagnosed much later, you get like three to four times um, the work to catch up on doing things because you were you didn't get those supports at an earlier stage. Right, right. Wow. So, yeah, that's so important. Um... Thank you for joining me on this episode. And thank you so very much to Mei-Chi for being open and honest and sharing her story. Please join me in the next episode where Mei-Chi talks about the successes she's seen in her son's progress since receiving therapy. She also discusses how important mental health is to her and how her journey has affected her mental health.